Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If you're not sure how to navigate that Bible, in that pew Bible, um, Matthew 5, the text we're going to read, uh, is on page 810 of that Bible. 810. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller ones are the verses. So we will, fi- we will begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And we'll read to verse 37. This is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And the Spirit speaks, and this is what is said. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white." Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you to listen to your words. And we pray that you will help us by your spirit to understand your words. That we as your people might live differently, that we would truly be distinct in the way we use our words in everyday life. Glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word, we pray for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. A new year um, brings for lots of people, uh, especially those who are Christians, uh, new plans Many of us, may, many of you may have launched out in a new Bible reading plan. Here we are nine days in. I wonder how it's going. You don't have to answer. But are we reading the Bible? What, you know, finishing those kinds of things, those Bible reading plans, it's a good thing. But knowing God and loving God as a result of reading His Word is the greater goal. It's better to read slower and know more than to read faster and know less about God. And one of the things that we'll find as we read the Bible is that God does what He says He will do. God does what He says He will do. So God tells Abraham He'll give him a son and descendants and a great name and a land And he does it. God tells Noah that he's going to judge the earth in a flood and save Noah and his family through an ark. And he does it. God tells Moses he'll deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And he does it. God tells Joshua he'll give his people victory in the promised land so that they have the land he promised. And He does it. In fact, Joshua 21 says, No, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 
God tells Jehoshaphat he's not going to have to fight this army made up of three nations that God will fight for him and bring victory, and he does it. God tells Hezekiah that he will extend his life by 15 years and protect Jerusalem against Assyria, and he does it. God tells his people that if they continue in sin, he will send them into exile, and he does it. God tells his people that through a pagan king, he will bring them out of exile, and he does it. God tells his people a Messiah will come, that he'll be born in Bethlehem, that he'll die for the sins of his people, that he'll be raised to life again, and that he'll reign forever. And he's done it in Jesus. You see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus isn't a, isn't a message about what we must do for God. God's not looking for us to come with our words. God, I'm going to do better this time. God, I'm going to get it right this time. It's actually a message about what God has done. God says, I have done this for you. And all who turn from their sins, every single person, no matter the depth of sin, no matter the distance from God, all who turn from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith are forgiven and find new life and hope. Why? Because God said that all who turn to Him will find forgiveness and hope and eternal life because God does what He says He'll do. This is an incredible truth for us. It affects all of life. It brings hope and peace in the midst of trials. I was talking with Adam Stuckey just yesterday about his battle. That really isn't a battle to extend his life. It's a battle to be faithful in every day that God gives him in this life. Because medically speaking, there will be no turnaround. There will be no cure. And yet his desire is to know Christ and share in his sufferings. That he believes that his pain is not without purpose. How can he, how can he believe that? Because God says it. And God does what he says he will do. It gives strength in weakness because God says, God says, He gives strength to the weak, and He gives power to those who fall, and He does it. And how many, if we just passed, if we just took turns, how many of us could testify to that, hey? How many could testify to the hope and the peace and the strength? Why? Because God does what He says He will do. And and when God created man in His image... His intention for us was to glorify Him, to reflect His character in all of life, including that we would do what we say we will do, that we would be truthful, reliable, trustworthy. But we aren't, are we? Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan in the garden, and as a result, all mankind has become deceivers. We tell untruths or half-truths. We tell big, fat lies and little, white lies. We hide the truth, distort the truth. We mislead, we misrepresent, we misinform, we're dishonest, we're deceitful. 
But I don't have to actually tell you this, do I? Because you already know. Because if we took turns giving testimonies around the room about that, we could all find ways in which we've been both on the giving and receiving end of those things. We wonder who we can believe and who we can't. In fact, we have a way to figure it out, to add weight and credibility to give to our words with this special formula to say, no, 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 I promise. People will sometimes swear on their mother's grave or on their children's lives. Kids, you know, kids walk around and it, when they know a promise just simply isn't good enough, they pinky promise, right? And still, we find a way to weasel out of our word. We make promises knowing full well we can't or won't keep them. We swear to the truthfulness of something knowing that it's a lie. As kids, we make promises and we cross our fingers, don't we? And if your friend makes you show your hands, what do you do? You cross your toes. Because everybody knows if you cross your fingers or you cross your toes, you don't actually have to meet, keep the word that you give. You don't actually mean it. We're deceivers. We don't do what we say we'll do. It happens in business deals and sales negotiations and political campaigns and personal relationships and parent-child relationships. It happens everywhere. Why does the state of Indiana threaten six months to two and a half years in prison plus a $10,000 fine for perjury? Because we are a society of deceivers. That's why. You didn't have to be taught to lie, did you? Anybody remember your parents sitting you down? This is how you tell a big one. This is how you tell a little one. <laughs> nobody, did, nobody did that. It's part of our nature as sinners. But it's not part of following Jesus. You see, becoming a Christian isn't simply about receiving forgiveness. It's about the fact that God completely transforms who we are. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are made new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. Romans 6 says the old self has died and we walk in newness of life. We're dead to sin and we're alive to God in righteousness. And with that kind of transformation in mind, Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Since you're brand new, Paul says, you ought not to be lying to one another. That's not part of the new life that God has given you. And that brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount. To continue our study here. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the life of those that are Christians, those that have been made new creations, those who belong to His kingdom. And here in our paragraph, He has words about our words. And He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. The whole paragraph is about the integrity of our words, and it's framed in a discussion of oaths. All right? So we're going to listen to three things. First, I want us to listen as the Old Testament speaks. 
the Old Testament speaks. If you look at verse 33, we'll get to the Old Testament. But Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now remember, when Jesus is saying that you have heard throughout this chapter, he's not quoting the Old Testament directly. This is not an Old Testament quotation. He's summarizing what has been said by the Pharisees. But what has been said here does, we do find reflections of this in different passages in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your Lord, of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. You see, in the Old Testament, people swore oaths to one another in very serious and very important moments. And when they did, they would add God's name to that oath. They would swear in his name. And and basically, when they did that, what they were saying was, God himself witnesses that what I'm saying is the truth, that what I say I'll do, I'll do. And if I don't, may God punish me. So making oaths is serious. It's not casual. It's not something you just throw around. It's not an everyday thing. It's meant for important, serious moments. I mean, here's how you know that making oaths is serious. Because God does it. In Genesis 22, he tells Abraham, I swear an oath by myself that I will give you descendants. In Psalm 89, God says that he swore to David that his descendant will reign on the throne forever. In Psalm 110, God swears that the Messiah, the Savior who is coming, is in the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews 6 summarizes what God does in the Old Testament and says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. God doesn't guarantee things with an oath for His sake. God guarantees things with an oath for our sake so that we know He is serious, so that faith is strengthened in what He says. Not because God's character is questionable or His Word is questionable, but because our faith is questionable. Because we so easily doubt His Word. We're all Gideon, aren't we? We're all Gideon. God comes to us in His Word and He speaks to us and He says, and we say, no, 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 wait a second, are you sure? God, how how is that? Are you sure? Can you give me a sign? If it snows tonight, I'll know. If I can play golf tomorrow, I'll know. We're just like that, aren't we? God's word isn't good enough. And just as God condescended and actually gave Gideon the assurance he needs, this is what God is doing in the oath that he makes. He's giving us assurance. Now, we can take every word of God to the bank, especially those that he swears an oath. So we have these oaths, and people are making them in the Lord. But you know what doesn't change just because you start swearing oaths? Human nature. Human nature doesn't change. 
We're still sinners. We're still deceivers. And so the law speaks to this in Deuteronomy 23. It says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So the Old Testament speaks to us about these oaths. They're not everyday things. They are important. They are serious. And they must be kept. But secondly, let's listen as the Pharisees speak. Okay? The Pharisees speak. Now, we don't have all that they say here. So what I want you to do is I want us to get a flavor of this. Just mark your place there and flip forward to Matthew chapter 23. All right? Flip forward to Matthew chapter 23. A handful of pages forward there. And what's happening in Matthew chapter 23 is Jesus is speaking words of condemnation toward the religious leaders of his day, toward the scribes and the Pharisees, the same lot that he's, you know, confronting in the Sermon on the Mount with all of this teaching. And in Matthew 23, there's these, there are seven uh, phrases. There's a phrase that's repeated seven times. It's, woe to you. Jesus is speaking these woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the one that's relevant for us begins in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, I'm not going to go into a full explanation, but I want you to get a sense of what the Pharisees are doing and what Jesus is exposing here. The Pharisees basically play games with vows. They play games with oaths. They have certain rules that make some oaths more binding, some oaths not so much. And actually, you find that same kind of thing in, a docu- in an ancient document called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of the oral tradition that rabbis had taught Uh, regarding the law and how to obey it. And in the Mishnah, there were these same kind of rules. So one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, that oath isn't binding. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you better keep that oath. And that's the same kind of thing that the Pharisees do. They have a whole system of being able to take oaths with no real sense that they're actually bound to keep them. That's what Jesus is referring to in verses 34 to 36. They'll swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by the hair of my head, and they wouldn't feel at all obligated to keep that word. The only way they would feel obligated is if they specifically used the name of God in the oath that they made. Only if they specifically invoked God himself would they feel obligated to do what they said they would do. It's actually a very legalistic way of looking at O's, isn't it? It's like being concerned with the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. To be more concerned with the formula of the words than the fact that you're giving your word to do something. 
In fact, this kind of exterior glance is what Jesus has been confronting all along, isn't it? He says, in, back in, starting in verse 21, he says, you know, this is what they say, don't murder. I mean, don't go out and actually, you know, shoot someone, but hate's no big deal. Just as long as you don't act on it. Adultery, now that is huge. Do not commit physical adultery, but lust... That's no big deal as long as you don't act on it. And here it's like, he, it's like what they would teach is, look, as long as you don't invoke the name of God, you can slip out of that oath, all right? But don't you dare break one that has that special formula with the name of God included. You see, what the Pharisees are doing is they're putting themselves on the judge's bench and they're deciding which sins matter and which sins don't. Which are the big lies and which are the little lies. Which are the lies you need to be concerned with and which are the lies that you can basically ignore. But you know what? That kind of thing didn't stop with the Pharisees, did it? Isn't that same kind of thing alive and well today? Just putting ourselves on the judge's bench and deciding what's really sin and what's, you know, acceptable. I mean, typically the pattern is, is that whatever I'm doing is acceptable. Right? It's because it's small. It's, it's understandable. It's explainable. It's, it's nothing. It's a blip on the map. I don't even need to think about confession and repentance because this is just a little nothing. Just a little bitty lie. But then the pattern goes on to say, whatever you're doing, especially if I'm hurt by it, that's the big deal. That is intolerable. That is insufferable. That is inappropriate. And you need to repent. So you see, when it comes to this whole matter of little lies and big lies, the question is, who, who's that? In your life, who is determining which ones are the actual sins? Are you on the judge's bench, or is God's Word the final authority? How many lies might you have let yourself get away with this week? Because it was understandable whether it was to your spouse or to your boss or to your friends or to your children or to your parents, that you lied, you misled, you just bent the truth a bit but explained it away because nobody was really hurt, it wasn't serious, it's not real sin, I don't need to confess it or repent. I mean, I didn't say I promised I would do it. It's just a little nothing. Do you see how relevant Jesus' words are for today? For your life and for my life? Jesus isn't just speaking about the Pharisees here, is he? He's speaking about the Hoosiers. We can't speak the way that the Pharisees speak. Trying to weasel our way out and then explain it away. 
And so finally, we need to listen and hear Jesus speak. What is it that Jesus says here? How does he respond to the Pharisees? What is the corrective? Well, actually, that's a point of debate. Because Jesus' words in verse 34 are, Do not take an oath at all. The question you have to ask is, is this an absolute prohibition against all oaths? And some say, why, yes, it is. Christians should not take any oath at all. Christians should not swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law. There should be no such things within our wedding ceremonies. Because people limit this just to oaths that are taken in court. But I can guarantee you, if you were married in, by a pastor, somewhere in there it was either in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or it was, so help me God, or something like that was probably within your wedding vows. So have you sinned and you need to go back and make that right? I don't think so. I don't actually think this is an absolute prohibition. And let me give you three reasons why. The first is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law speaks of oaths and it controls them. Says that if you make them, don't break them. That's what the law says. And Jesus came to fulfill. He didn't come to abolish any of that. So it must not mean an absolute prohibition. Second reason... God himself swears oaths. Wouldn't it be odd for God's people to not do that? Wouldn't it be odd for Jesus to sound like he's saying, you know what God did in the Old Testament, don't you dare do it. It, it almost sets the Son of God against the Father, and they are one in purpose. But thirdly, Jesus himself testifies under oath. In the trial, just before his death, he remains silent. Do you remember that? He will not say a word until this. Matthew 26. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. When the high priest adjures that word, which is not one that we use at all, except when we're reading Matthew 26 maybe, I adjure you means that the high priest was putting Jesus under oath. He was calling Jesus to speak the truth with God as a witness about this matter. And you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't refuse. He's not, he, he doesn't think to himself, I don't have to answer this. That's an oath. We don't do oaths around here. He doesn't argue with the high priest. He doesn't tell the high priest he's out of line, though he's not opposed to saying such things, is he? What does he do? Knowing that he's under oath, he tells the truth. He affirms. The next verse says, Jesus says, you, you have said so. Under oath, he testifies. And then he goes on to say, and from now on you will see the, man, the, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, of, of the power on high. So I don't, I don't actually take this to be an absolute prohibition. But if that's not what Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying here? I think he's saying two things. 
The first is that every word is witnessed by God. Every word spoken is witnessed by God. Let me show you why I think that. He runs through these O's in verses 34 to 36. Look at it. Just just follow it. He says, oh, you swear by heaven? That's God's throne. You swear by earth? Oh, that's God's footstool. You swear by Jerusalem? Oh, that's God's city. You swear by the hair on your head? Friend, that's still God's domain. Because no matter what box of color mix you may buy at the Walmart, you cannot control the changing of your hair from black to white or from cinnamon to sugar. (laughs) You have absolutely no control over any of that. Who does? Whose domain is the hair of your head? Whose domain is heaven and earth and Jerusalem and all of the universe? Who is it? that is omnipresent, and every word is spoken before Him. God! It doesn't matter whether you swear an oath or not. Don't swear an oath at all. Why? Because every word you say is witnessed by God. You don't need anything. You don't need any kind of special anything. Don't play games with oaths. Don't play games with promises and pinky promises and crossing your fingers and all that mess. Don't try to make it acceptable to be dishonest. Don't try to hide your deception in these ways. Don't make up excuses and explain your lies away by saying, Oh, I didn't really mean that we would do that that I would do that. Oh, I, 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 didn't, I, 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 I didn't mean to say that, that. This is not the behavior of those who follow Jesus. We should say what we mean and mean what we say because God is witness to all of it. In uh, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer points that out. He says, all all of our words are before God, not just the ones we swear by oaths. There's not just a certain subset of our words that God cares about. Every word spoken is witnessed by God. Every promise, every oath, every word to your wife, every word to your husband, every word to your child, every word to your parent, every word to your boss, every word to your friend, every text, every email, every post, every tweet, all of it is seen by God. And so Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, what that does not mean is that we will only give account for the careless words. That little phrase is meant to encompass that every single word we say, even the ones that we may not have given much thought or self-control to, and we just blurted it out. Every one of them. Every word spoken is witnessed by God. But the other thing that we see here is that every word must be spoken with integrity. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or 
know. Look, if you're a Christian, you don't have to make a promise. Parents, you don't have to tell your kids, oh, I promise we'll do that. I pro- I, you don't have to, t- kids, you don't have to tell, you shouldn't have to tell your parents, oh, I promise I'll, I'll do that today. I promise I'll finish that homework. I promise I'll do that. I've told my children on different occasions, I don't have to promise. I just say we'll do it. If I fail, it doesn't matter whether I said I promised or not. I mean, if I just don't do what I said I'd do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it worse for me to say, oh, no, 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 really, we will. If I say I will, then I will. I should will. Right? Isn't that the kind of friend, friendships we want to have? Aren't those the kind of parents we want to have? Aren't those the kind of children we want to have? Aren't those the kind of bosses we want to have? Aren't those the kind of employees we want to have? Aren't, aren't those just the kind of brothers and sisters in Christ we want to be and to have in one another? Is that when we say yes, that's all that's needed. Yes. So when you say you'll do something, do it. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward uh, application, isn't it? You tell your wife you'll fix the toilet, fix it. You tell your child you'll play the game, play it. When your signature promises you'll repay a loan, pay it. When you tell your parents you'll clean your room today, clean it today. When you tell your parents you'll be home by 11, be home by 11. You tell someone you'll help them move, help them. If you interview for a job and you tell that boss, oh yeah, I can work 50 to 60 hours a week, work it. You get the idea, right? Now, certainly there are cases in which God's providence hinders us from keeping doing what we said we would do. Sickness keeps us, you know, God's providence over our health keeps us from doing what we'll do. Unexpected things keep us from doing what we'll do. But as far as it rests on you and on me, we must be people of integrity. We must do what we say we will do. Our yes must be yes and our no must be no. Because you see, in the end, the reputation of Jesus is tied to how we live as his people, how we speak as his people. We can exalt him in our lives or we can drag his name through the mud. And if we drag his name through the mud and tarnish his reputation with our coworkers or our neighbors or our friends or our children or whoever, so that they struggle to even listen to us about what we did yesterday or whether we'll finish a project at work or how I spent my time or whether I'll be home at this time or that time, if they can't even believe us about that, why would they, even, why would they listen to us when we begin to tell them about the most important things in the universe, about God and about sin and about judgment and about a Savior in Jesus Christ and forgiveness and eternal life and absolute transformation? Why would they believe us? You see, friend, if that is us, if that is you, if you're still toying around with lying and dishonesty and deception and making, saying things you know you can't do or knowing that you won't do them, Jesus would say, repent, turn around. 
Stop hiding and distorting the truth. Stop telling the big fat lies. Stop telling the little white lies. Turn from deceit and dishonesty and seek the forgiveness of Jesus. Ask for the Spirit's help to change so that you can have integrity in your words and to always be a truth teller. I mean, that's actually really the main point of this is that a Christian's word must be trustworthy with no need for added assurance. That's the point. You should just be able to say yes or no. You shouldn't have to say anything else. The question is, is your word trustworthy? What would your wife say? What would your husband say? What would your kids say? What would your grandkids say? What would your boss say? Your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. What does God say? Is your word trustworthy? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that every word that you speak proves true. That not a single word you have spoken will go unfulfilled. We are thankful that all your promises are yes in Jesus. We are thankful that your promises of growth and help and strength and grace in our time of need, in times of suffering, in times of trial, that you never fail to give it. We are thankful that your words about the last day, about the hope of eternal life on a new earth, the, the hope of Christ's return and of evil fully and finally being punished, of you bringing us home to be with you forever in eternal, uninterrupted joy and peace. We are thankful that we can have that hope with great confidence because you do what you say you will do. And we pray that by your Spirit, you will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ in these things. You will make us a people who does what we say we will do. Would you do that for the sake and glory of your Son, Jesus? We don't want his name to be dragged through the mud because of our lack of integrity. We don't want his gospel ignored by our friends because of our lack of integrity. We want to honor him and, and we need your help and your grace and your strength to do that and so we ask for it. And we pray now that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all the rest of this day and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.